This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Fermanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. Hey guys, so imagine if this happened to you. It's a spring night in Berlin, the sun has set some hours before, and you're taking a long walk after dinner with your friends, meandering through the city's various parks. And you suddenly come across a rather bizarre sight. There's a group of musicians huddled together under the canopy of the trees whose branches are catching the distant lights of passing city cars. And they're all clutching a different instrument, a flute, a saxophone, a clarinet. One is even using her own melodious voice. And all their eyes are fixed on the trees above. Then a bird starts to sing. It sings, it sings, it sings, an otherworldly textured song like riverbanks, bursting forth, breaking into sudden silences, unpredictable, haunting the stuff of legends and love poems. And now the musicians themselves start to play. Swimming slow. This scene actually takes place every year, orchestrated by our guest today on the show. For why should we relegate ourselves to play music only with our human counterparts? Why not jam with whales, with insects, mammals, and in this case, nightingales? These are the kinds of questions that David Rothenberg provokes through his interspecies musical sessions. David is a musician, a performer, who has played and recorded with many of the musical greats. He explores the human relationship to nature via explorations of sound, making music live with the sounds of nature, recording with other species, writing books, and making films about the process. He is the author of Why Birds Sing, Thousand Mile Song, and several other books, which have been turned into feature-length documentaries and films. As you can tell from the last episode of the podcast, I've become recently quite curious about sound. In the last episode, we had Karen Backer talking about the role of bioacoustics in translating the lives of other species. And increasingly today, we're seeing wonderful examples of all sorts of scientists and creatives using music as an avenue for wider messages on our human position and planetary processes. For example, in Zurich, Switzerland, you have Marcus Meader, who is an artist and researcher at ETH University, who through his initiative called Sounding Soils, uses sensors to listen to the soil and hear the sounds of the animals underground. Or famously, check out Bernie Krauss, 
who is one of the best-known soundscape ecologists, who travels the globe collecting the most beautiful and rarest natural sounds, chronicling them in books and recordings with titles like Into a Wild Sanctuary and The Great Animal Orchestra. You may even have heard of The Songs of the Humpback Whale, a very famous 1970 album which was produced by bioacoustician Roger Payne. Its haunting songs demonstrated for the first time the elaborate vocalizations of humpback whales. They printed 10 million copies and sent them around the world in National Geographic magazines, and it quickly became the best-selling environmental album in history. Its sales went to the Wildlife Conservation Society's Whale Fund. And by raising awareness on the intelligence and culture of whales, this recording helped to spawn a worldwide Save the Whales movement which partly led to the 1972 United Nations Conference and a 10-year global moratorium on commercial whaling. Aside from the impact that some of these uh, musical tomes can have on our relationship to nature and other life, I think it's very interesting. Uh, recently, I heard a theory that song and dance may have predated formal words and language. So that means that singing itself may have led to sophisticated language through driving the neurodevelopment in our brains. As homo sapiens, one thing is for sure, we are definitely hardwired to react to sounds, to listen to music, to attune our eardrums to the thrumming of the world. Our love for beating, pulsing music runs way, way down the evolutionary tree. And so today, my provocation for you is simple. I want to transform how you listen to nature every day. I want to ask where you can begin to perceive the multiple musical compositions of our planet. As David says, once heard as music, the world of animal communication is immediately accessible, emotional, and interesting, but we rarely notice it. So my friends, listen wider, expand your sense of music to more than human sounds, and through this, you may very well take in a world of greater beauty and greater meaning. And of course, beyond listening, there's actually participating. There's playing back, playing with creatures as species with other species. So let's find out how to do that. Here's David Rothenberg. Well, David, hello. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for inviting me, Alexa. Where are you speaking to us now from? I'm in Berlin, the top floor of this apartment building and all the plants are here. You can't see all the beautiful plants in the balcony. And this, my friends live downstairs. No one else wants to use this room but me. It's always empty. So whenever, <laughs> I, whenever I come stay here, it's either too hot or too cold for most people. You are an extremophile. <laughs> it's just so real. It just seems like, like what a real cool place. Like I don't care if it's hot or cold. <laughs> Hey, if you're doing Berlin, you've got to go, you know. You've got to go bandy. for it, exactly. You've got to yeah. go to Berlin. Yeah. Let's kick off the conversation. You know, last week we had Karen Backer on, well, last week, a few weeks ago, and she was speaking about sort of the sounds of nature and bioacoustics and how we decipher languages with, you know, AI and machine learning. What I think is really cool is this transition today into our planet's music. And as you know, the name of the podcast, Life Worlds, is about how we deepen our senses to the, the worlds around us, the life around us. And so here I think we're going to talk about the the form of poetry that kind of surrounds us every day. You have one of these lines in your books and, you know, it really made me think because I don't know how familiar it is for people and even to musicians 
And how strange this might sound to our listeners, that there are other musicians on the planet that aren't just human, right? And then we kind of have to reckon with them. And in your book, you say, we can study more than human music and see how our music builds on this. And our love for beating, pulsing music runs way down deep to some of the most ancient and numerous species that populate this earth. So let's start there. What do you mean by that? How have other creatures influenced human music and songs? Yes, well, people are really interested in music. We love music. We're not always sure why. We're not sure what it's for, what it does exactly, but there's so much of it. We keep making more. We keep loving it, listening to it, either things that we've listened to hundreds of times already or something we've never heard. It touches us. It grabs us. And then you start to think, why? Where did all this music come from? How can you tell if a sound is music? Well, when I went to school, they taught us music was organized sound, which I always thought was a pretty bad definition. (laughs) I would say that it's music if someone tells you it is. Like, consider this as music. Okay, this is now music. So if one person thinks there's a pile driver in the street, (laughs) drill. That's noise. They wish they would stop. Someone else plugs in their guitar and goes, same sound. They say, music. Is it noise? Is it music? It's both. It's whatever someone wants you to consider it as. So I don't know. Is that any better definition? I'm not sure, but it's clear that people love melodies. We love rhythms. We love patterned, repeating shapes of sound. And Beings have been making that. Living creatures have been making rhythms, melodies, noises, musical collections of phrases and sound for millions of years before there were ever humans on this planet. I'm talking about our fellow musicians like insects, like whales, like birds. All of these animals are much older than we are. They've been around a long time. And some people in music want to find the classics, the true great things that have stood the test of time. Well, we know the sounds of birds and insects, cicadas and nightingales, humpback whales. These have stood the test of time. They've been around so long. There must be something right about this music. Humans are always changing our music. We change our minds about what we like because that's the kind of species we are. We're very restless and unsatisfied. Look what we do to the planet just to survive. And these other musicians tend not to do so much transformation of their environment, but they've been singing, they've been dancing, they've been doing all these musical things that we do for a lot longer than we have. And I think our whole culture has evolved in the presence of these beings, and we often forget that. Like the standard story is people like rhythm because they they like a certain beat, a certain tempo, because it's the rhythm of humans walking across the landscape. Like that makes some sense. But even before we started to walk, didn't we hear insects? Didn't we just hear that rhythm before we even started to move? So why not consider that our love of the beat comes from bugs? Our love of melody might come from birds, blackbirds outside the window. You might hear one that goes, this incredible melodies. And people take this stuff for granted. They don't really always consider it interesting, but there it is. You know, this just made me think of how a lot of indigenous languages are phonetic, like they sound like the ecosystems they're in. So some of their words for the bird is the sound the birds make, or their sound for the ecosystem is the sound of the river. And so 
it's also this link between, well, obviously that maybe the music that we made, not just the speech, the human speech was resonating from that ecosystem. And in one of your books, you you speak about in Bali, right? With this traditional society that was very interrelated with other kinship relationships with other species. And you say in your book, there's this clang of fast melon orchestras or the... Uh, Ketchak monkey chant. Do you know okay. what that is? What is this? Oh, <laughs> uh, you got to. We're going to give you a sample of the Ketchak monkey chant. It's going to be right in this podcast right now. It's one of the famous early examples of why world music is interesting. From the 1950s or so, David Lewiston, I think, made this recording. You just hear some people going, cha, 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 cha. And there's hundreds of people that are going, cha, 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 cha. It's this whole incredible rhythm. Everyone's just going, cha. They're telling stories from, you know, the Mahabharata or things like that, you know, and sitting around in a circle. And it's just this overlap. It's like a bunch of people are being like the insects. And I definitely, this is one thing I did learn in college about in anthropology reading writings of Clifford Geertz about Bali. And, and he would talk about in Indonesia, everything's in cycles. Like there's only a few names people have. So you have the first four kids have these names and it cycles again. And the months, there's a cycle, the years, everything's in cycles. Everything has a name, overlapping periodicity. The music has the same quality. And he found that located throughout their whole culture, the cyclical repetitive thing. And gamelan instrumental music, they're playing all these gongs, has that quality. The monkey chant has people just doing that. And it's really, uh, you, you know, if you've never heard it, you go, okay, wow, people can do that. Let's just do it right now. You could get a room of 50 people doing the monkey chant in probably like 10 <laughs> minutes. And you would be like a bunch of, of cicadas, like, <laughs> You know, it, that should be our next life world's meetup. Cue, cue <laughs> monkey chant. How do people need to listen differently when they're listening for this animal music than human music? Because human music, as you said, it's sort of this organized sound, this sort of traditional instruments. How do we need to listen or how could we, how do you invite us to listen to animal music? In a way, we want to listen to it the same way we should listen to human music in that we want to take it seriously. So instead of just hearing the sound of a bird, say, as just some random noises coming out, or maybe you think, oh, they're talking to each other. Well, why not think they're singing? They're producing a sound with a pattern, with an emotion, with, with a, 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 you know, I guess it's sort of what the word musicality means. It has a certain shape and form. It has to be done just this way for the other birds to care. You hear the emotional quality in it. If you like to measure that stuff, you can notice that dopamine is released in the brains of birds as they sing. Or you can just hear it and say, wow, isn't it beautiful? And some people will say, oh, you're just being a human. This is not beautiful. That's a human subjective response to something that's uh, very much for a purpose. The bird defends its territory and it wants to find a mate. And don't think there's anything beautiful in that because nature, everything happens for a reason. But that's not really how nature works. Nature, through evolution, produces weird, cool, crazy stuff. It's not all so functional and clear. And you can just say the same thing about human music. Oh, these musicians are singing to define their territory and attract a mate. 
And it's, it's somewhat true, I suppose, but it doesn't say anything about the music. It's avoiding the music, replacing the listening experience with its function. So what I'm saying is you don't want to figure out just what music is for to listen to it. You have to just take it in. And today we are getting so functional about human music, I would say. A lot of uh, students I talk to, younger people, I play them a piece of music and they, they ask this question they never used to ask. Well, that's interesting. Mm. Well, what's it for? I said, what do you mean? What's it for? Oh, is it for studying? Is it for focusing? Is it for falling asleep? What's the purpose of this music? Because we are constantly being fed lists, playlists of songs with a purpose. Everything's like to optimize now. And it wasn't that long ago where the same kinds of people just love music for itself. Like, where's that cool new Rolling Stone song? I can't believe it's going to come out. It mattered, mattered so much in the rise of pop music. Just, just single songs could make a huge difference. What's the meaning of American Pie? No one's ever figured it out. You know, so this song, like, like, are there songs like that today? People are really trying to puzzle through that matters so much to everyone. There are some, but people tend to look at music as something to optimize our lives. And I, I'm not sure it's a bad thing, but it takes you away from the music into um, what it does to us. And I think you have to get into the music. And so the first thing I'd say is just listen more seriously to what you want to consider as music. If you hear something and you say, oh, that is music, listen more carefully to it, more completely, and really try and take it in and figure out what is musical about that sound you're hearing. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say something very hippie, but just after another thing, which is the, yeah, when I read in your book that when the birds sing, it releases dopamine. On one hand, it's like, okay, well, then it's neurochemical and their brain is rewarding them for doing the thing that perpetuates. But at the same time, if you think what's happening, okay, beautiful, whatever, the bird is receiving dopamine. So the bird is enjoying the singing. And so as the birds are singing, whether neurologically or not, it doesn't matter. They're, they're experiencing that joy and that bliss as they sing. And even just that knowledge, even though it's scientific, for me, makes me look at it in a different way. And as for the sounds around us, you know, it's funny, we think about animal sound, but I often find that the wind has music and has language, actually. If you're sitting on top, I was recently in the UK on top of one of these big tours, these big kind of rocks in the middle of a national park. And the wind was so strong and I had my little park around my head. And it was stopping and starting and moving. And it was music. I stayed there for half an hour hypnotized. And so I love this invitation of like, take any sound that's around you seriously, because if you drop in deeply enough, it can become art. It can become enjoyment. It can become music. Yeah. I don't think of that as being <laughs> hippie in a negative way, but then I'm a hippie myself. So, you know, <laughs> I went to hippie summer camps and, you know. All that kind of thing. Where were you, by the way? I was in a tour in Dartmoor. Um, Dartmoor, in yes. Yeah, Dartmoor. I've been on the Dartmoor. Oh, it's very yes. windy, famously so. And, uh, you know, Bernie Krause, a famous sound recordist, has mentioned a conversation he had with a Native American elder. They were listening to the wind in the trees. He goes, listen to that. You know, that's where all the music comes from. And at the same time, we all know wind doesn't make any sound at all. It's only when the air hits something. It's only making a sound when it's going against your parka or the rocks or the trees. And Tim D, a famous BBC nature recording personality, he made a whole film about 
recording wind, which is what sound recorders try to get rid of. Wind screens, wind gets in the way, messes up your recordings. I'm watching the wind here, like it's going to get too windy. Do I have to shut the, the door? And yet to actually seek the wind is a great thing. And so he makes this whole wind program. Oh, that's so it's, good. It's very beautiful. He goes to the, the first place in England, to the east where the wind hits coming from the North Sea, the very first moment where it's incredibly windy. And, and he's sort of taking it in. That makes me think of what you do with the nightingales. And maybe that's actually a great segue. And you're actually in Berlin now, so it feels like the right place to start because I want to talk about the nightingales, the whales, the birds and the insects with you today. Hopefully we'll get through all of that. But, you know, you say that Berlin is the center of nightingale science and their song is one of the most beguiling songs in nature. They have gigantic repertoires, like the males know up to 200 song types and that they're always exciting and that they're always singing. So tell us about the nightingales. And I love that you're in Berlin right now. When did you first come across them and why did they bewitch you? And what do you do with people and nightingales? Yes, Nightingales in Berlin, the title of my book and uh, a film that we made about this. I first came, it wasn't the very first time I was in Berlin, but I made a plan to spend the year 2013 to 2014 living in Berlin to play music with nightingales because I had read a few articles about how oh, it's a city, but there's all these birds singing in the middle of the night in these parks. And there's more nightingales in the city of Berlin than in places like Paris and London. There's songs about nightingales in the city. They don't sing there anymore. What Berlin has them. And I said, oh, that's a good idea. I'll move to Berlin for a year. It's got to be full of some fun musicians and we'll go play with the nightingales. So I'll find a place to live next to this park where I hear there are nightingales. And I already knew actually from writing the book, Why Birds Sing, came out in 2005, that Berlin is full of nightingale scientists at the Free University. They were studying the nightingales. So I figured it was a whole convergence, a good idea to do that. So 2014, I started doing this. Each year we added more different musicians. And then I realized how amazing it was to watch somebody sing or play with a nightingale for the first time. I said, oh, we have to film this. Well, the only problem is it's dark. Like, okay. And then I read that some cameras had been invented that weren't so expensive that shot in complete darkness. Oh, great. We're going to use these cameras. And that's how it all began. And I keep coming back every year to do this again and again. And I just did it one hour ago right now. No way. Even though it's just about June, it's late. But this spring was so cold until one moment in like, not so early in May, like a week into May, it suddenly got warm and the birds just freaked out and they had been like waiting so long. In 2014, we started April 12th and this year it was so cold then. And so they're still singing now, some of them. And so I just found one in the middle of the day singing, which is a little bit unusual. It means he's still singing, he hasn't found a mate, he's kind of frustrated. And so took out an iPad and started sampling him <laughs> and remixing him, which is one of the things we've been doing. But I was pretty sure it's definitely too late now. So that was really fun to, to just do it right now. And so I, I definitely feel I've gotten to know these birds. You can see this in like bird schmutz right here <laughs> from, from this adventure right now. And so what turned out is a wonderful opportunity to connect people and nature in a place where more than other cities I've been, like oh, people are up for anything. Like, let's try this. Let's go to this place in the middle of the night. Let's go to this park, you know. It's such a creative way to, as you said, connect people to another species. How do you know which tune to play? Do you respond to their song? Are they listening? Do they answer? Like, I watched the film. It's hard to tell whether they recognize your presence, whether they're answering. And as a musician, I'm not a musician. Someone else could probably ask the question better than me right now. But how do you jam with them? Yeah, well, nightingales are a very special bird in this regard. Like, the first time I heard one was in Helsinki. 
where I was living in 1998 and it, you know, it's light all the time in spring. So we're walking home. It's like two in the morning. We heard this really strange bird. Like, what's that? I go, Oh, you don't know. It's a Suffolk a nightingale, a hundred voices, you know, like what, that's what they sound like. You know, I had read my Shakespeare and Wordsworth and John Keats and I, I thought they were very mellifluous and kind of like melodic, more like blackbirds, I would say. That's what I imagined they sounded like. But once I heard they made these weird rhythms that sounded like electronic music, it got me really interested. Like, hmm. Then I started reading more about them, and I learned they have hundreds of phrases. They leave space in between the phrase, you know, and that they respond in very specific ways to other birds. Oh, these are the perfect birds to try and make music with because they're going to leave space for you. Like, boop, 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 and then space and more space in the spaces they're listening for other birds and they either give space to them back and forth sometimes they interrupt when they're trying to defend their territories once they've established the territories they just kind of like here i am here i am here i am it's very it's very balanced and then uh, with those birds singing we have space to join in do they actually care what we're doing i would say they're very interested in sound I know what they do to show off, to show how great they are. They tend to go like, they're doing that more, more than you can. Like, look, I can do this. Can you? And because people have studied these birds, we know a little bit about what each sound means to them, like which ones they prefer or, or dislike more than others. We, we haven't figured out their code, like what the nightingales, how they fit these together what makes a good nightingale sound because um, i mean we can hardly tell what makes good human music what's the best instrument to play with them all kinds of things can work i mean if you want to get a direct response you know you sample them and play their own sound back that's cruel no i, I feel like that's kind of you don't think so is it i don't know if it's cruel I, I think it's cruel when people do it if i'm playing with someone and someone's just copying me i think it's cruel i think the nightingales like to play around with sound that's what they do to each other like one bird goes, doo, 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 doo. another one copies it. Huh. That's what they're used to. So when you twist it in interesting ways, you know, that interesting to see how they react. There are certainly some scientists who said, don't mess with our birds. We can't study them if you're messing with them, playing their own song, songs back. But I see all kinds of interspecies music among birds. Like there was one nightingale in the tear garden a few weeks ago. We had a rehearsal for a concert that was the next day. And this bird was just singing weird things. Like it wasn't like a nightingale song exactly. Like what's he doing? You know? And then later I was there alone and a song thrush appeared and they started singing back and forth to each other. And I heard that this song thrush and this nightingale, they each were sounding more like the other species. The song thrush was doing nightingale type stuff. The nightingale was doing song thrush type things. They were like duetting too much together, doing their own things. And that I never heard that before. Every species, as Charles Darwin wrote, has its own aesthetic, its own approach. And after I heard that, I started hearing it elsewhere. And I started thinking, hmm, this is like something going on this year because of the weird weather. There's this song thrush nightingale duets happening. You also hear blackbird nightingale duets and the blackbirds get really annoyed. They don't like it when the nightingales sing too much during the day and they're kind of muscling in on their territories and they're bigger. They just chase them away. And maybe the nightingale has kind of a, a sexier song and the blackbird is like, hey, dude, don't steal my vibe. I've got the afternoon. You take the night. This is the kind of thing scientists should be studying. They don't always study this approach, but they should. And in my first book on this subject, I kind of criticized scientists for 
oversimplifying the story and just saying that the, the longer song, the more complex song leads to more success at mating. Oh, yeah, well, it does in the sedge warbler. So there's a lot of papers on the sedge warbler. But look at the European marsh warbler or the great reed warbler. They all sound like sedge warblers, but to the nth degree, it doesn't correlate with them. Nothing happens when a super great reed warbler song is sung. It doesn't lead to any more mating success. Why then do they do it? Who knows, you know? We don't have as much certainty about biological function as we pretend to. Oh, absolutely. We don't know a lot of stuff. Same with people. So much we do not know. And one thing science has tended to push away is the idea of beauty in nature. And yet Charles Darwin got it right away. He knew that natural selection, survival of the fittest, was just one small part of the story. That's not what evolution is about. You know, if you don't like Darwin because you think he just cares about survival of the fittest, he did not. He was interested in so many other cool things like Survival of the Beautiful, the title of one book that I wrote. In his writings, it's just not always emphasized. This actually is a really interesting uh, way to start talking about the whale song. I thought it was very cool. Maybe I'll put it in the in the show. But when you slow down the nightingale song pitch, it starts to sound like a whale. And then when you increase the whale, it starts to sound like a nightingale. I thought that was just a very cool play. But on the part of, you know, we don't know why animals do things and there's so much we still have to discover. You speak about these whale songs and the fact that the whale song has these very artistic elements that, that go beyond information, right? So there's kind of consistent final sounds like rhyming in the way that we would rhyme. Yeah, you know, it's unclear that all this animal song has a lot of information in it. It's like music. Does music have any information? Do you listen to a Bach solo invention on piano or on violin for information? Like, sure, there's a bunch of notes they are put together, but it's not like something to translate. It's not a complicated message. It's the beautiful patterns of sound that we like to hear, that we explore, kind of for their own sake. And, you know, you mentioned that humpback whales and nightingale songs slow one down, speed the other up. They start to sound the same. What's that all about? These are both extreme examples of excessive musical activity among animals. We don't know why the nightingale needs to sing so much. It's pretty risky behavior. Sits out on a branch, an owl could come by and grab him. You know, the, no other whales sing so extensively or, or really sing at all. They're more talking to each other. But why do these humpback whales need these long performances that can go up to 23 and a half hours? We don't know why this whale needs to do that. Wait, what does that mean? One whale doesn't stop for 23 hours making a sound? Uh, supposedly somebody has heard that, yeah. Wow. I mean, they, they stop to breathe, but they then keep singing. Usually they, the song itself, which has an exact pattern, is like 15 minutes long. But then they start again, do the same thing again, do it again and again. And usually they would sing for like 30 minutes to an hour and then stop, go off somewhere else. But somebody once recorded one going on for 23 and a half hours. And, Gosh. Uh, you know, what? why? And, and the amazing thing about humpback whale song is people did not know about it until the 1950s. We've known about bird songs for tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years. But whale song, you need an underwater microphone, a hydrophone to be able to hear that. And... Um, when it was discovered, you know, by the U.S. Navy, they said, oh, we can't let people find out about this. It's got to be classified. There must be something we can do with this secret knowledge. They were listening, of course, in the Cold War for Russian submarines. They didn't hear too many of those, but they heard a lot of marine mammals and particularly strange coded patterns of humpback whales. And so 
for about 10 years, it was secret. And then they decided, look, people really should find out about this. Everyone should hear them because they're so beautiful. And there's a famous science paper by Roger Payne and Scott McVeigh where they actually have this line in the text. The humpback whale emits a series of surprisingly beautiful sounds. Oh. And you say, like, oh, what's so amazing about that? It's a science paper. How do you know it's beautiful? Can you prove it? How can you say something like that? Because, you know, scientists are people too. They have emotions about what they're studying. And these guys were brave enough to say that. And nobody complained about it. Since then, I don't think there's a single paper on humpback whale songs that mentions the word beautiful. And I've asked some of these scientists, do you like the song? Oh, yeah, it's so beautiful. Why didn't you say that in the paper? Well, I don't know. How could I prove it? You know, it just shows the difference between scientific thinking and other kinds of thinking. And, and we should never assume that science is, say, more accurate, more important, a human way of knowing the world than, say, music or poetry. They're all equally valid human ways of making sense of what's around us. We have to combine them together to learn the most about any phenomenon, recognize their differences. They're not going to say the same things. They're not going to operate the same way, but they're all important. Yeah, we had um, in the last season of the podcast, an artist and PhD scientist come on who was doing a lot of work with Joshua Trees and Extinction. And she says, you know, I use my science to answer some questions and I use my art to answer others. And sometimes they weave together. On the whale song, you know, right? Oh God, I have so many questions I want to ask you about this book. The first thing I think is quite interesting is how their song is like the newest thing, you know, it changes every week, right? Changing week to week, year to year, they change the song. And you actually went out there and you did a few things. You interviewed people around the world as they tried to decipher underwater music. And then you also played music with the whales. Uh, share a little bit about that process. Yeah, these are the kind of books I've been doing, starting with Why Birds Sing and then Whale Music. Originally, it was called Thousand Mile Song, but the new edition, I changed the title. And then Bug Music and Nightingales in Berlin and the upcoming Secret Sounds of Ponds. All of these involve not just listening to the music of nature, but joining in, playing along, trying to make sense as a participant. I mean, one reason as a musician, I feel like I understand music that's out there by playing along with it in a different way than the science, than the writing, than the analysis. But to actually join in, I really get some different sense out of this. And you might ask, as you did before, well, what have you decide what to play? Well, I, you know, as an improviser, as a jazz musician, and someone who's played with musicians from all over the world, I'm used to coming into a situation where it's kind of unknown. And yet you figure out how to join in with your basic musical knowledge that you've had for a while. And I'm a big fan of Wayne Shorter, the great saxophonist who passed away a few weeks ago. And he, you know, famously, um, when his pianist, uh, Danilo Perez, came to audition, he was so nervous, practiced every possible famous Wayne Shorter tune, comes in ready at the piano. You know, he says, any piece you want to begin with, sir? And, and then Wayne says, no, no, Danilo, put all the music away. You cannot rehearse for the unknown. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> and there's a wonderful film, you know, of, of this whole band called Language of the Unknown, where you see that they're actually playing these Wayne Shorter tunes that are famous to jazz musicians, but you can barely have a glimmer of the tune there at some higher level of, of consciousness, which I think you want to aspire to when you play along with nightingales and humpback whales. You just learn how to join in with them and make a music that no one species could make alone, like... I don't know if the humpback whales or nightingales care about this music, but together we're making something that's never happened before or not, not, neither of us could do without the other. 
And, you know, you don't know if the whales or nightingales care, but, you know, we make something together that's that's completely new and in between. And, and I think it has this kind of knowledge. You also can't quite say what it is, but there's something there when it works. There's something really can happen, some kind of communication. A lot of people look for examples. Where did the whale, did the whale copy you as a sign? We were supposed to be copying each other. That's a sign of like interaction. No, you know, the sign is when you make something that gels and fits together, can't quite place what it is. That's usually the kind of editing I do with this. You know, you record a lot of live music with animals and, and wind and environments and you listen to it. Is there any moment where something seemed to work? And you say, yeah, this part worked. And then you show it. I mean, other times I would take a natural sound and remix it and transform it, but that's much less interesting than being live and making something there in the world of these animals that was unexpected. I also think that the act of the nobility of trying to participate and respecting and giving a serious, you know, as you said, like take it seriously. And then the the participation, the witnessing, the playing along that act in itself is the purpose. It doesn't need to lead to an outcome always. It's th that engagement with the world is deeply healing and important in its own way. I don't think it always needs to have a very concrete outcome. Absolutely. That yeah. is the concrete outcome, getting people to do it. And I would say the biggest change in my own work over these years I've done this is to not just have it be about me. You know, if you read Why Birds Sing, like, I'm going out there, I play with the lyre bird in Australia, and here I go with the laughing thrush, and here with this bird, you, you know, that it's all about me doing some weird thing in different places. And in the whale book, I go here for the belugas, here for the orcas. Like, But in Nightingales in Berlin, it's me and other people, the other people there with the nightingale. I want to share this possibility to get other people to do it. And it seems like a positive development, like... You know, I'm finally growing up and not just thinking about myself and birds like enough already. <laughs> I've read the reviews. This guy's only interested in himself. Oh, come on. I think if you're if you're pissing people off, I've you're doing it. something yeah, right. right. Yeah. That's right. So, some people have kicked our microphones and said, get away from my birds. I'm calling the police. Of course, we've also had the police come and say, okay, people are complaining. But we've also had the police come and say, this is important what, we're, <laughs> what you're doing. We're going to make sure no one hassles you. Oh, that's great. That's in Berlin. Two, two different kinds of police encounters in Berlin. What's been the response of people who have um, come along and played? Like what have been some of the anecdotes or stories they've shared after having sung or played with the creatures? It's kind of transformed them in ways that, that they didn't expect. You know, that's what we try and show in the film. Lembe is, is singing the song Dreaming Slow that she had written a few years before. And, and she just says, wow, that's just like, I feel like I'm flying. And then I, Ines Telis, an opera classical singer, I went to a very proper concert she did singing music based on birds from the classical tradition. I said, oh, that was pretty good. But have you ever sung live with Nightingale? She goes, what, you can do that? Yeah, we'll go outside, do it right now. She didn't even think you could do this and it, and it totally changed her whole trajectory. Now she's putting on these weird circus-like performances about science. It's like science and comedy. I will send you a link to it. And I, I'm very happy that I contributed to the transformation of her whole career by saying, come along and do this. You know, I wasn't planning it out, but you sometimes look for people that go, okay, he could do it. He, he or he needs to do this. And other people don't, you know, they just play their own music. But there's a nightingale there. They don't change. I want people who change in the context of these moments. How do you bring this in with your students, with the courses that you teach? I make them do it sometimes, yeah. 
you know, I just taught a four-day course in Prague for students from very different backgrounds. And they all did this concert at the end, but none of them were performers. We had like four days, like, okay, you're going to be playing. You can play your computer, remix sounds, you can do something. And, and they all did it. And then many of them were complaining. I'm not going to do it. I'll sit it out. I don't know what to do. No, no, you just do it. Just get up there. You know, it's going to be fine. And I was really fun watching them transform into performers. My own students are similar types because I teach at a kind of uh, state engineering school. It's like a working class people to study to get ahead in life, New Jersey Institute of Technology. But they've always let me do just what I want, do all kinds of creative things. This semester I had a music class. People were, you know, making music on their computers and they weren't musicians, most of them, and they just start to do it. Here, let's just do this. You know, I don't, I don't know anything. It's okay. Maybe it's better. Just make something up. Just explore and then listen. Listen to more music. You know, you learn how things can be done. So I don't emphasize music and whales, say, with them, but we do something like that. We, sometimes we bring it in. But I more emphasize inventing something we haven't heard before. They all want to produce pop songs. And I'm saying like, yeah, okay, you could do that. But let's do something no one's ever heard before. It's, and I also make them play together live, playing the computer. You know, they haven't thought that that's interesting. They want to precisely plan it out. And actually, I, the more interesting things happen when, when people are not totally in control. I've always believed that. And so I get them interested in the kind of way of making music that I like, the mm. uncertainty. And I'm totally open to whatever they can do. I'm not so critical. I mean, I'm critical of people who don't work and try things out. But I'm not critical if someone doesn't know the difference between A and a B flat. Or they don't know why this chord progression is supposed to be good and this one you're supposed to not use. I don't care. You know, Use the one you're not supposed to use. Keep using it, and then we're going to like it. You learn in harmony class, you cannot use parallel fifths, which means you can't have like C and G and go up to D and A, you know, classically. But then Beethoven famously said, oh, parallel fifths are forbidden? Well, I <laughs> allow them. Well, it's interesting that you actually, I appreciate that you take your own medicine and advice because in your book, Bug Music, you say, you know, initially you didn't yourself appreciate insect sounds as music. And it was only over time that you could appreciate bug noise as something sublime. So you kind of went on your own trajectory of like, uh, what is this? To, oh my God, this is freaking amazingly fantastical. Yeah, it's good you picked up on that. I always liked things that sounded natural. Like I didn't like electronic sounds. Synthesizers were boring. Then I started reading about bugs. It's like, oh, I feel like I'm reading a synthesizer manual. The way scientists talk about insect sounds is the same as the way people are building oscillators and electronic instruments. And I started liking these electronic sounds because they sounded like bugs. And, and previously I thought it was too machine-like. So my, my aesthetic kind of changed in the process. And some of the bug sounds on that album are entirely synthesized, but no one's going to know because they just are made the same way. And so they, you know, I try and learn my whole aesthetic change in the context of these different sounds. And often it's something I'd heard about years ago and ignored. Like I always knew that ponds make a lot of interesting sounds. You can hear the sound of photosynthesis and you can hear weird insects. You don't know what they are usually. It's very hard to identify which bugs are making sound. So you can listen in a pond and hear something nobody knows what it is quite easily because it's just not that well known. And so that fascinated me on my latest project coming out next year. And some of the pond music is already out. I mean, you can't believe what these ponds sound like. 
It really sounds like electronic music. I've even sat with a pond, turned on the underwater speaker and microphone, and people th thought I was playing some electronic music concert, you know? People don't really take ponds that seriously. I mean, ecologists do, because we, you know, we understand what they mean. But in general, a pond being a source of unexpected delight and new discoveries of sound, I would never mm -hmm. have thought that myself. Yeah, little kids do, like uh, Pond Life. You know, I love that. I, it's well-worn copy of the Golden Field Guide to the Pond when I was a little kid. I, we took it very seriously because it's right there. You can go out there. I think my brother and I fished out every crayfish in the river outside our house and ate them all <laughs> and, 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 and things like that. And we would constantly drag out these weird creatures because it was so accessible. You know, it's right there. And then I, I kind of laugh going back to it, finding these sounds. And, and still when I do this, I'm going to hear amazingly surprising things. You can't tell what it's going to be like. Like it's really a surprise. I'm getting like a visual if you have the whole planet and if you imagine that underwater, there's these very long whale songs that rhyme at the end, right? And then you have the nightingale doing this like boop, 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 boop. And then you have these ponds that are like these microcosms of many different shapes And then what I loved in your book on bug noise, you speak about the 17-year cycle of these, um, how do you say it, chichadas? Cicadas. I love to talk about that as well, how our planet beats to all these different drums of time. And some creatures are synthesizers, like very, very quick. Other ones are long. And the chichadas, oh my God, I can't say it. Cicada. It's, I've never been able to say the word. It's actually very embarrassing. Um, but anyway, I guess it's a bit of humor. You're saying it great. It's a great way to say it. I like your versions. They're fine. And so the cicadas, they have these 17 year, you call it almost the longest animal rhythm beat. This is like one of the deep heartbeats. Yeah, the longest beat. Yeah, exactly. Even more than the bear in meditation. Silence and then shh. It's so much longer. Yeah. Like, like, how do they even know? How can these bugs know when to come out? It's great, you know. And, and why? Why does this happen in these cycles? It only happens in the eastern U.S. Why are there 17-year cycles? In the book, I talk about some theories about that, but honestly, we just don't know. And, and the 17-year cycle, I guess, for people who don't know, is that they emerge, right, every 17 years. Yeah, you, you see none of them. There's none of them you know, this year, and there's none of them, and then after 17 years, they come out. However, there are different populations of them. So if you go to a different place every year, they're coming out somewhere. And of course, they're not perfect. Some of them wake up the wrong year. <laughs> That would be me. Like, where's the party? <laughs> I don't think it's the right place. Yeah, and so you do hear them the wrong year. And, and other species of cicada, of course, come out every year. As always with nature, you want to be very specific. If you say like, whales do this, it's like one kind of whale does this, another kind does that. The differences are there. They're not all the same. And you played with the cicadas, right? I spent a lot of time doing that. Yeah, it's interesting. What's what, I mean, what's that? It's like joining into a total wash of, at first it sounds like noise until you learn what's going on. And then it's like, there's three different species. They each make up to four different sounds. You have carefully choreographed 12 different sounds in overlapping patterns. It's really a piece of grand music where they're all put together. But it very easily sounds like noise to most people. And certainly when you first encounter it until you learn what's going on. Could you imitate in that amazing way that you do? Oh, this, you know, there's different sounds. Like the most famous uh, of the three 17-year cicada species is one called Magis Cicada Septendecim. And of course, when they gave these things Latin names, they knew there was something magical about this. It's not just cicada, Magis Cicada. They're magic. Scientists did have fun with their names. So this it makes the pharaoh sound like pharaoh, pharaoh. And then you have millions of them. The tail goes away. You have, you don't hear the end. You just hear, doo, 
like this drone, this noisy pitched drone. And that's amazing that millions of them doing pharaoh turn into this tone. It's like they have a musical strategy just to live. Wow, that's really beautiful. That's one of them. And at the same time, you hear a, another species, Magisicata cassini. And this guy looks the same, comes out at the same time. And they go, each individual, <laughs> what? <laughs> and then when they have millions of those, they figured out how to synchronize by doing this dance. They all go like, <laughs> all together. And then they stop and fly like that. And they're synchronized. And th then they start to sound like, And they do that by all flying up with this. And why do they do that synchronizing? So they can distinguish themselves from that other one that goes pharaoh. So you have a tone, do, and on top of it, shh, shh. So this is a musical strategy. These species distinguish themselves by doing different musical things. That's not the way scientists would describe it. But when I describe that to the cicada scientists, they say, oh, okay, that is an interesting way to think about it. I mean, it must be so hypnotic. I'm wondering how your music has changed because of having spent so much time listening to, playing with, understanding these musics of the world. How is it different for you now as a musician? It totally changes. Like I start to understand the way these animals have an aesthetic sense and I bring that aesthetic into my own music. There's one particular piece um, that I did with Nightingale in Helsinki that's on the album called Sharawaji Blues. At the time, I was so tired and frustrated with the whole thing. It seemed so pointless to play along with Nightingales. Like at that moment, I thought, First of all, it was light out. It's in Finland. The birds are not happy because you can see them. They don't want to be seen. <laughs> so like, why is it light? They're thinking like, what kind of place is this? How did I end up here? They're moving around and the sound seemed so alien. I was just kind of playing. I said, this is terrible. You know, what did I think I could do? When I listened later, I said, this is the best thing I've done. This is, I've really changed. I, the, the bird has changed me. I've turned into something else. You know, I, I kind of understood something, but at the time I was very distraught about it. So yeah, I think it's constantly changing my music and I'm always looking for something else. It's like I'm not satisfied with where it is now. I'm very impressed that the whale scientist, Jim Darling, he has a boat called the Never Satisfied, which he say, claims is the ethos of science. You're just never satisfied. You should never be satisfied with your analysis, with how much data you have. There's always more you can do. Once you get satisfied, you lose the scientific inquiry, the desire to ask more and better questions and to realize we know nothing. You know, We know so little. And he's a very humble and wise scientist mm. with an attitude like that. It's somewhat unusual, I'd say, in his field. Would you say that um, by getting close in this way to the creatures and, and playing with them and that it allowed you a window into their life worlds that you may not have had otherwise in some form? And, and what would be specific about the musical, improvisational life world window than it might, than someone else who's, you know, even doing bioacoustics or whatever else it may be? What, what would be unique about the way that you get to perceive their worlds? You should join in. You should do, imagine you can join in and do it. It might not seem scientific. It might seem like an intrusion, but not if you do it well. And your podcast is called Life Worlds. So you've studied phenomenology one way or another. And phenomenology is about trying to let the things come to you and, and enter the world without preconceptions. And if you're used to improvising, you want to get to that sense of no preconception 
the inability to rehearse for the unknown, but the openness to what's there, to just relate to it rather than thinking, I can't relate to it. You don't say, what do I do? You just do. You just do it. And that's part of, you know, the goal of phenomenology and talking about things like the life world of another person or another animal, that you want to know what it's like to be in their shoes, metaphorically, in the way, or the way they, they experience the world. You know, you know we've all read uh, Thomas Nagel's famous essay, what, what is it like to be a bat, where he argues, we're not going to know what it's like to be a bat. I think if you talk to Thomas Nagel today, he'd say, well, I was wrong. There's so many ways we can learn a bit of what it's like to be a bat, or maybe a lot. We can enter these forms of experience. And I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure, even having talked to him about it, that he would have a whole different view. Certainly, if you read his later writings, he got very critical of science in the narrow sense of analytical philosophy, deciding this means that, that means this, and much more open to the unknown or the notion there's many ways of perceiving things. I really love that sense that it's very important training for how we remain open to things that may be unknown, different, surprising, and that we can participate in it. It's such a it's such a unique and, and powerful way to practice that. And I think it's also a, within this, but but maybe just slightly parallel to it, it's also just, as you said in the beginning of, of our conversation, a way to open ourselves up to the sheer beauty of the world around us, right? And so I think a lot about, obviously, this moment in time, highly challenging species are going extinct. We know that, you know, ecologies and climate is not at all how it should be. And, and so I'm also always very curious about, how I say this, contexts that support us in processing, you know, pain, grief, confusion, turmoil. And it seems to me that part of the, you know, musicality with other species has something to contribute to that. I think it, it can support us. Have you seen that with people that you've spoken with where something about that is also deeply healing when people are maybe feeling sadness or confusion or alienation from the living world? Absolutely. I mean, it makes the world so much more beautiful, so much more alive if you take seriously these things that are right around us that we often don't notice. Like nature is here, even in the city. Nature is around and we, we, we kind of smile. We like the sun. We like when the days are beautiful. But how often do we listen to how all the sounds fit together? When you choose to listen, when you take it all in, you know, it is uh, nearly always you're tapping into some beauty that otherwise you might have overlooked. And in its own small way, being aware of that is going to make us take nature more seriously, help to save the planet while we're destroying everything by, by paying greater attention. I mean, I'm, I'm as intrigued as anyone else about the possibilities of big data and, and new forms of intelligence helping us out with this. But before all that, and still more important than all the data in the world, is our own senses and perception. We can learn to be better listeners. You know, the machine is not going to be a better listener than us. It's like what you said, the gap in the Nightingale song. That space between the words and the doing, it feels like a very good metaphor for what you're describing. Yeah, the space between phrases of a nightingale song. Is that where we're supposed to join in? Or should we be silent? Mm. Just wait. What do we do in those silences? And Hans Ulrich Oberist, you probably know this, who has interviewed every possible person. Have you ever listened to those or read the many interviews of the great curator Hans Ulrich Oberst? This is the Parliament of Objects and all this. Yeah, I know his work. Yeah, so many things. Yeah, so many, so many things. The oldest person he, I, I think, interviewed was Hans Georg Gadamer, 
perhaps he was a hundred years old at the time. <laughs> he knew about podcasts or interview interviews, and he said, hmm, yeah, I see, and you're going to transcribe these. Yes, I know the hardest parts to transcribe are the silences. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard Hans-Georg Gadamer speak a few times in person, and even then I was surprised that he said that. Like, that's that's pretty good. Yes, the silences are important. And uh, and the silences is also the extinction. It's the world going quiet. So there's there's something really interesting in that. I have a note from, I don't know which of your books I picked it up from, but I just have it as a bullet point. And I wrote Requiem for a Lost Frog. Does that say something to you? Yes. It just sounded like it, it has something to do with like the loss or the sadness or music that we can relate to. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, this book, Nightingales in Berlin, originally was going to have a whole different title and be about a lot of other sounds because I was just writing everything I was thinking about. There was a species of frog that just the last individual died in captivity. And so all that's left is this sound, this recording. I think Karen Backer also talks about this species somewhere in there. And my friend Andy Revkin, environmental journalist, he wrote a story about this frog. And then I heard the sound and I said, I'm going to use this in some piece. And so I, I made a piece based on that. And I wrote about it in the Nightingale book amidst other things, to show the sense of, you know, you're not just thinking about one thing, but everything. We have these sounds of extinct species. Many, many recordings of species are disappearing every day, and we have the records of them one way or another. It's very sad. Personally, I, I don't tend to dwell so much on all these depressing things because it's so easy to get depressed. I try and think, how can we celebrate joy? How can we make a difference? How can we wake people up? Maybe being blindly optimistic, like, I think we're going to solve these problems one way or another. It's going to be tough over the next hundred years. People will still be around. We are going to radically change the way we live, our sources of energy, our attitudes to nature. It's going to be hard, but I think we will do it because we are pretty adaptable. I don't think we're also going to suddenly be enlightened beings doing all the right things. There's going to be all this terrible stuff. But some people, the more honorable and, and more attentive and smarter ones, will work towards the solution and not embrace the complete destruction of it all. Oh, I mean, yeah, right. no, one, one would hope so. And I one guess as a, hope, as a, yeah. one would hope. Yeah, and yeah. I guess as a sort of closing question or invitation, in a lot of the books you have references for all aspiring bug musicians, they should listen to this work called The Insect Musicians by Ravel, or uh, you've recommended basically a bunch of different compilations and playlists. So maybe that's something that I could put in the show notes for people who want to listen and explore. And I guess I would close with how can people get involved, participate in what you're doing? And if they can't find you because you're somewhere in Costa Rica in the jungle doing this with people, <laughs> is it just, you know, go out into your backyard and bring your flute or your trombone and see what happens? You should uh, do it, but also be sensitive to it. In Nightingales in Berlin, I have one chapter with a list, 11 paths to animal music, where I just sort of say like, okay, this is what you should do. And there are kind of basic things. I'm not going to give you the whole list, which I haven't memorized, but, you know, have a sense of humility. Don't listen more than you play. Step back. Don't play your usual music. Be open to something new. Don't just play a beat underneath it. Don't make your, your own music louder than the animals. Be quieter. Have them set the guide. Learn something. Don't, don't just stick a bug sound in, in your own songs. You know, that, that, that's too easy. Be prepared to be transformed. It often means stepping back, listening a little more, playing less, and really being willing and, and able to change and open up to something very different. 
I'm also going to mention sometimes podcasts like this, they say, well, what have you been reading? Is there any book you can recommend? And so I recommend a book called If Nietzsche Were a Narwhal. Maybe the guy's name is Justin Gregg, something like that. He's a dolphin scientist, Canadian. And his book is not so much about Nietzsche as about the fact that uh, we humans don't tend to understand animal intelligence so well. We think animals are smart, like, oh, look, that parrot can count to 27. Or look, <laughs> this nightingale makes such beautiful music. They do things like us. We think that's smart. We're just thinking that we, we identify with them. But look at animals that we don't think are so smart, like um, ants. You know, They put together these whole societies. Everyone is so much a part of a larger system. And so uh, we don't understand intelligence as much as we think we might. You know, So do we understand beauty, aesthetics, and music as much as we think? I don't think so. We, we kind of, uh, we have our preconceptions. We decide this is music, this is not music. I think if we open up our ears, our minds, open up our perception to, to what's going on in the world around us, we have a much more beautiful, musical, harmonious nature that we are also a part of. And this can help us find solutions to so many problems we have today. And I almost feel like your 11 paths to animal music sounds like really good life advice. So it feels like the perfect place to wrap the conversation. I really want to come with my little mouth harp. I'm learning how to play my harmonica and just join in. So thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been so inspiring to have you share with us your crazy, beautiful approach to participating with other species. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's been a delight to talk to you. And, and I look forward to all the episodes of the Life Worlds podcast. So let's take David's advice on seriousness seriously. Let's take the music of other species seriously. As he says, to pay attention to this ancient phenomenon is one of the noblest things that we can do. And let's make music that no one species could make alone. Thank you for listening here as well. Thank you for tuning in. And send me the songs of nature that you discover in you. I would so love to hear from you and through you, the voices of the world. Meanwhile, I'll be practicing how to say cicada, cicada. <laughs> Have a beautiful day and see you next time, where we'll be learning all about wildlife passages and designing infrastructure with other species in mind. <laughs>